Welcome to Moving Forward with Young Voices. So happy to have you with us, and I'm very happy to welcome Daniel DiMartino back to the show. Daniel is one of the very first Young Voices contributors that I ever met. And uh, Daniel, you've left quite an impression on me, and we are here to talk about something very exciting that is going on in conjunction with Young Voices. Before we get there, though, bring us up to speed. Since the last time we talked, tell me a little bit about what you've been up to and what you're engaged in. Yeah, well, I finished my second year of a PhD in economics at Columbia, so I have a master's degree now from them. I have at least three years left of my research. Um, you know, I kept speaking in universities um, all over the country and on events about socialism and about what living in Venezuela was like uh, to warn Americans about that. And, uh, you know, that's that's basically what I've been up to, really. <laughs> and that's really that is the first thing that impressed me about you is you you were um, speaking as as someone from Venezuela who had seen firsthand with his own eyes the transition from a free country into a socialist country with all the stuff that comes along with that. And there's a very exciting new project that Young Voices is launching and you are right there at the forefront of it. Tell me about the dissident project. Yes. Uh, well, uh, I had the idea of the dissident project uh, several months ago because I figured that I have so many other friends from Venezuela and other countries who are doing the same thing I do, which is speaking at events about their experience. And we all know each other. We're all friends. So I thought, why don't we join forces? And then Florida passed a law that required high schools to teach about communism and about socialism, including at least 45 minutes a year that, that can include first-hand experience from, from people who lived under those systems. So I thought this is the perfect opportunity for us to offer or, you know, or service in, in a charitable way um, to, to schools so that American kids can learn from our experience, especially in Florida, but elsewhere in the United States too, at no cost to them, right? Because I, I also thought that uh, the big barrier for schools to comply with this law would be that they will have to pay for someone to come to their school because, you know, traveling is not cheap and gasoline is increasing in price and all right. these things. So so thankfully, John Boys has stepped up and, and we got a group of donors together and uh, now we, you know, we funded this project. Of course, we welcome more donations, but mainly we're looking for requests from schools to, to bring the group of eight people we have from Cuba, Venezuela, uh, North Korea and Hong Kong to speak to their schools. That's so powerful. Tell me a little bit about some of the individuals that you're working with on this project. Yes. Well, uh, all the individuals in this project, they really inspired me, and, and I'm very proud to to have them uh, with me. Uh, one of them is Grace Joe, who I met through the Victims of Communism Foundation. We went to the White House to speak to President Trump together back in November 2019. And she came from North Korea to the United States along with her mom. The rest of her family was murdered by the North Korean regime. And the trek to leave North Korea is not an easy trek, and it's a very traumatic experience. And yet now she is a student of interior design in the state of Georgia, uh, which had always been her dream. And she, you know, uh, was able to living in North Korea and, and just thinking that America is not an evil country. is an act of rebellion. 
And the fact that she was able to overcome that indoctrination along with her family is, is really in, in, inspirational. And I think something we should all learn from. Um, we have Franklin Camargo, a friend of mine from Venezuela, uh, who I met through social media initially. And then we met in, in DC many, many weeks later. Uh, he uh, was expelled from his college in, in Venezuela. He was studying medicine because he refused to sign uh, an, a petition by the, that the professor requested supporting the socialist revolution. And he was expelled, received death threats, he had to leave. His family was also Mormon and they were religiously persecuted. His brother was, was attacked in a mission. So a, a lot of layers of persecution there. Um, we have my friend Felix Jerena who came from Cuba. He's also in his twenties and he came by himself. He got involved with the U.S. Religious Freedom Initiative while he was in Cuba, and he came to like some events of the Organization of American States. And, and he was really a, a you know a big guy on social media, and the regime hated him. And then they attempted to arrest him, threatened his mom, uh, and so he left Cuba as well and came to America. Uh, and then we also have Frances Hui, for example, who she came from Hong Kong, and she was the first Hong Konger to receive political asylum in America after the 2019 protests. She had started in the U.S. in college, then gone back to Hong Kong as a journalist, and that's when the protests happened. You know, she covered it. She was in the forefront. The the CCP, uh, uh, you know, threatened to arrest her, and then she left uh, clandestinely to come to America. Wow. I'm looking over this roster and I I see young faces, but I see faces that, that have actually lived an experience that I don't think a lot of people here in America can fully appreciate could also happen to them. And, and I want to ask you, Daniel, as, as you go out there with the message of, of the importance of freedom and of free markets and, and, and of being aware of the danger that this particular type of collectivism uh, poses, why is it that people are so skeptical sometimes? Why, why is it so hard for us to believe uh, living in America that something like this could happen here as well as it could happen uh, in your country of Venezuela? Well, people had trouble believing in Venezuela that it could happen in Venezuela, right? Venezuelans used to say that Venezuela will never become like Cuba. Venezuela will never, you know, be a socialist country like that. Venezuela has soil. It's a democracy that, you know, we cannot... This, that nothing can happen to us. You know, it's like we're immune. It's in, a, in some sense, it's, um, your ego is so big that you think you're immune from problems, right? You actually are such an exceptionalist and a patriot of your country that you think you're immune from bad things happening to you. So, you know, I believe in American exceptionalism, but not to the degree that I think that nothing can happen, nothing bad can happen to America. <laughs> Certainly bad things can happen and bad things have. But things have happened. So we have to learn from history, even our own history, right? You know, after the Civil War, and we thought that we were going to free the slaves and then uh, end discrimination against blacks in the United States. And then the, after Reconstruction was stopped and segregation came, but things happened here politically and, and socially. Well, those things can happen with socialism and with other political systems. And the reason that we want to go to schools and teach about this is that in schools, we already teach about fascism, Nazism, slavery, but nobody knows what Holomodor is, for example, right. the starvation that, that killed millions in Ukraine and, and Russia. Nobody knows about Mao's Great Famine. Nobody knows about what happens in North Korea today because there's so few even North Koreans abroad. Uh, and nobody really appreciates that Venezuela is a history, is a story of failure of socialism, not just any corrupt government. 
You know, six million people don't flee from an average corrupt government. Very true. And, and you know, the, this is the thing that gets me. We have been moving steadily toward socialism. And yet when, when someone who has actually lived under it speaks out about it, it seems like there are a lot of people who tend to be skeptical. And maybe it's that exceptionalism or maybe it's, they just don't want to believe that, that such a thing is possible. But, boy, if you can learn from someone else's experience, it seems like that's a much wiser way than having to, to suffer through it yourself. And, and look, Brian, some people believe in these ideas because they just really hate America. And I don't say this as an insult to the people who hate America. I say this because it's an unfortunate situation that we need to fix. Because the only reason one can hate America is because they don't know what happens in the rest of the world. Even I have been shocked from the experience of fellow Venezuelan immigrants in this country who lived in all Latin American countries on their way here. And they tell me the rampant discrimination against Venezuelan immigrants in Panama, in Peru, in Chile, in Argentina... It's insane, something they have never experienced in the United States, that you would think, you know, the, the Anglo culture, the English language barrier, the fact that you're, you know, more ethnically observable is, would make you more of a target of discrimination in America. No, Venezuelans are much more discriminated in countries that speak our same language and that you can't even differentiate us by our looks, but just by our accents. Wow. So I think... I think America is a tolerant and, and, and prosperous country, and we need to value the good things. Well, I can tell you that I appreciate the fact that you are standing up and, and speaking a message of freedom. And I don't think that you're doing this for selfish reasons. I really believe when I hear you talk about some of the dangers that we're facing here in America, I feel like I'm hearing this from a friend who is genuinely concerned about the direction that we're going. Uh, and I am, um, you know, I, I, if anything, I've lost a lot of time, money and uh, opportunities because I want to do this, um, you know, even friendships, uh, because some people dislike people who believe, who think differently and express their thoughts. Uh, but I do it because I'm just very passionate about it. And I feel like it's my duty as someone who came to seek freedom in America to preserve that freedom here. Well, I congratulate you and your fellow contributors on the Dissident Project. We'll have a link in the show notes that will direct our listeners uh, to, to the website or the web page for Young Voices where they can check this out for themselves. Where can people follow you on social media? People can follow me on at Daniel DiMartino. That is just Daniel and then D-I-M-A-R-T-I-N-O uh, on Twitter. Uh, there's also my website, DanielDiMartino.com. But mainly if you want to book us for the Dissident Project in your school, if you're a high school teacher, go to DissidentProject.org and you'll find all the information there. It has no cost to you or the school. Okay. I'm very proud of you, my friend. Keep up the good work. Thank you for having me, Brian. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We're happy to welcome Andy Young to the program. He's a legal fellow at Tech Freedom, a nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank focused on technology, law, and policy, as well as being a Young Voices contributor. Andy, how are you today? Great. Thank you for having me. Well, we're going to be talking about some stuff that I think is 
not well understood, and I'm putting myself at the front of that line of, I don't understand it very well. Section 230, I hear a lot of talk about this in relation to free speech online. And and sometimes I get really frustrated with what, what appears to be some, some pretty hardcore censorship on the part of different uh, tech platforms. But I, I hear people sometimes rumble about, well, what we need to do is repeal Section 230, and you know that way we can solve the problem. But the most informed people I know say that would be a huge mistake. And, and I'm guessing, because of your background, you would probably be able to make the case as to why getting rid of Section 230 would not necessarily be a wise thing. Is that true? I hope so. I hope I can clear up some misunderstandings today. So let's let's differentiate between Section 230 and the First Amendment, because it seems like sometimes we tend to conflate these two things. How can we keep them separate? Yeah, so I think we should start with the First Amendment. Uh, I think we're all pretty familiar with the First Amendment, but it's a nice refresher to learn how it works. So the First Amendment is part of the U.S. Constitution. It protects free speech and most notably, it applies to the government. That's something that I think it's important to remember. Free sp- uh, the First Amendment does not apply to Twitter. The First Amendment does not apply to Facebook. Those are private entities. So what the First Amendment is designed to do is to prevent the government from censoring private entities. So it's actually designed to protect entities like Facebook and Twitter from censorship from the federal government. So that's where the First Amendment comes into play. Okay. Now, Section 230 is part of uh, of our federal, what, code? Yes. Section 230 was a law passed by Congress. It's Section 230 of the Communications Act. So it's, it's much newer than the First Amendment, although it operates somewhat similar. And what is the, what is the function or the purpose of Section 230? So Section 230 immunizes Internet companies from liability for third-party content. And I'll give an example of what that means. Third-party content are the posts that you and I post on Facebook, the reason, or, or Twitter, for example. And the reason we call it third-party content is because you and me created the content and posted it, and Facebook and Twitter are just hosting it. They didn't create the content. And what Section 230 says is that Facebook and Twitter are not liable for any illegal things that you or me might post on their service. And that protects them from legal liability for the third-party content, which they host as part of their service and business model. Now, I can think of even another example, and I'm thinking of uh, at least the the, um, Buffalo mass shooter who uh, was shooting up the supermarket, who was communicating on online platforms about what he was going to do, was, you know, streaming, you know, the video of, of his attack. And yeah, it wouldn't make a lot of sense to to go after the platform on which he was streaming as if, you know, this is your fault because you allowed him, you know, to to stream that content there. Um, Nonetheless, it sounds like uh, there there needs to be that opportunity for these uh, these platforms to decide for themselves what is or what isn't appropriate content. And is this what what Section 230 allows them to do? It does indeed. And uh, the Buffalo example you gave is actually the Buffalo shooting example. I think it's actually a good example. And it's a bit counterintuitive. But when you put some thought into it, Section 230 is the law which gives Facebook and Twitter the flexibility to go ahead and take content like that down. When there's offensive or dangerous content posted on their platforms, Section 230 immunizes them from, first of all, that content being uploaded, 
but it also immunizes their choice to take down that content. So they don't have to internally think, well, we get in trouble for taking down this video of this mass shooting. Well, there'll be parties out there who will prosecute us for treating this content differently than other content that we live up on our platform. So therefore, should we hesitate to take this down? All of that guesswork is taken out by Section 230. It immunizes them from liability and lets them think clearly about the content moderation choices that they need to make to make their platform safe. Okay, Andy, help me off the cliff here, because I really do get frustrated sometimes with the uh, the tamping down of information and the the uh, restrictions, for instance, YouTube or or Twitter. It seems like they really uh, they really go out of their way to narrow the acceptable um, field of opinions from which, uh, you know, people can can see you know the content that people can see. But. I would much rather have them be able to make that choice and, and, and hope that someday some upstart new platform will eventually grow to that kind of magnitude and likewise would be protected so that you know it doesn't have government dictating to it what it can and cannot allow. Yes, uh, I am sympathetic to a lot of the claims that conservatives make about their voices not being amplified on social media. I don't know what's going on behind the scenes in these Silicon Valley companies, but what I do know is that the First Amendment protects these social media companies' ability to have a viewpoint. So um, just taking the argument for granted that maybe the social media companies prefer left-wing speech over right-wing speech, just taking that for sake of argument, uh, If even if that were the case, in fact, the First Amendment allows them to take that position as a private entity. And like you said, that's ultimately what I think conservatives should support. Uh, we uh, the, the idea that the, the government should be the arbiter of truth and decide what these social media companies, these private companies can and cannot allow on their platform is a less desirable scenario than the First Amendment protecting free speech across the board, whether it's speech you like or speech you don't like. And that's the ideal scenario. That's the way the First Amendment has worked for hundreds of years. And uh, the fact that now we're dealing with Internet companies doesn't change the way that the First Amendment operates. Yeah. And it's, look, it's just a perception on my part. Um, you know, YouTube recently contacted me and said, hey, we've gone through and removed some of your content because we believe you've uh, promoted medical misinformation. And I think... Well, from their standpoint, I'm sure I did. <laughs> I mean, I, there's I, I hold some contrary points of view and and I take a little bit of offense at that. At the same time, though, I think you and other advocates for Section 230 are doing us a favor in warning. Don't make governor government rather that final arbiter of, of what can and can't be said. If we ask government to help, I'm sure they'll be glad to. But it will come at a price, won't it? It sure will. And I, I am personally sorry to hear that your content has been given red flags or, or hassled. And like I said, I, I am sort of curious about the rationale about what's going on in Silicon Valley on the one hand. But on the other hand, um, it's actually the First Amendment that allows those companies to sort of decide what content they want to have on their platforms. So these calls to amend Section 230 are actually red herrings. Uh, when people say we need to amend Section 230 to make it harder for platforms to censor us, they're overlooking the fact that it's actually the First Amendment. Uh, that protects these platforms' ability to moderate content on their platforms. Censorship isn't even the appropriate word. Censorship applies to government action. So uh, these, these calls to amend Section 230 ignore the fact that the First Amendment will remain. And the First Amendment is very hard to amend. 
And we probably don't want to amend it as, as conservatives in this space anyways. So uh, the, the conversation about Section 230 on the Internet can be a bit of a red herring and there can be some misinformation involved in that conversation as well. All right, Andy, we've got about one minute left. I have to ask you this. Is it possible for Section 230 to be improved? There's a lot of ideas out there about ways that we could amend Section 230 without fully repealing it. Um, I think a lot of those ideas have merit. I think the the best way to find out is to read the literature from these people who are writing about and thinking about what the unintended consequences of these changes to Section 30 might be. So I think uh, any changes to Section 230 that allow for platforms to continue to moderate, plat- moderate content and not have the question marks that we discussed earlier in this interview in their heads about whether or not they should take down content when they feel that they should, I'm open to conversations about amending Section 230. However, we really do need to think about the consequences that come were we to amend the law. And uh, if we want to actually have less speech on the Internet or more, and depending on that answer, will support certain amendments and reject certain amendments. All right. We are talking with Andy Young. He is a Young Voices contributor as well as a legal fellow at Tech Freedom, a nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank focused on technology, law and policy. Andy, where can people follow you on social media? People can find me on Twitter at Andy Young Tech. And that's about it. So look for me on Twitter. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome Nicholas Anthony back to the show. He is a policy analyst in the Cato Institute Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, as well as being a Young Voices contributor. Tell me what else is keeping you busy these days. Oh, gosh, there's a little bit of everything these days, Uh, mostly focusing on a lot of the issues surrounding financial privacy these days, Uh, talking a lot about how inflation is coming into the this the conversation where it's not just affecting the prices, but also just our quality of life. But also, aside from that, looking at some of the things going on in the market and trying to keep track of everything that's going on and really just figuring out what the best way forward might be. What's this about inflation? This is the first I've heard of it. I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, it's. I think everybody's getting a little bit of an object lesson in it right now. And uh, I have your article in front of me from Cato.org, How Inflation Erodes Financial Privacy. Now, I know how it uh, diminishes the purchasing power of every dollar in my pocket, but talk to me about how it uh, takes away financial privacy as well. Well, this is something that it goes on year after year, even in periods of low inflation. It can be uh, high like we're seeing right now or pretty low like the past 10 years. There's this constant increase of the surveillance regime that's going on as far as Americans' financial data goes. And it really just dates back to the 1970s when the Bank Secrecy Act was first enacted to create this reporting regime uh, in hopes of countering money laundering and, and the use of secret foreign accounts. But now it's turned into something much different. It it originally was required, one of the first provisions was that uh, anytime someone moves $10,000 of their own money, it would be reported to the government. And it's remained at $10,000 since 50 years ago. Wow. So 
it just has constantly increased because of inflation. So what if we adjusted ten thousand dollars? If we adjust for inflation from uh, what that was worth uh, fifty years ago, um, what would that threshold be today? Today, that would nearly be seventy five thousand dollars. Well, that would keep a lot of us out of (laughs) those prying (laughs) eyes, wouldn't it? Wow. Yes. I mean, originally, when very quickly, when this was passed, people were concerned. Civil groups were reaching out to Congress saying that this is a problem. And it even made its way to the Supreme Court on a number of occasions. And we had times where Supreme Court justices, for instance, Justices uh, Powell and Blackman had said, although they agree with it, they say that it is constitutional. They thought that it wasn't an undue burden because it was that $10,000 level. And in 1970, $10,000, you could buy two brand new Corvette convertibles. That's, that's not a bad deal. Wow. Today, I don't think so. And, and people have found out about this sometimes the hard way. Uh, for instance, if a person went to the bank and did a $9,500 transaction and then a day or two later went back and did another, you know, several thousand dollar transaction, there's a very good chance that the government would start focusing on them for violating structuring laws as if they're trying to avoid that reporting threshold. Exactly. And that's something that a lot of people got caught up on. Uh, Just uh, about 10 years ago, that became a a huge issue where so many people not not actively trying to evade the law, but just happened to be engaging in those transactions that were by themselves below the $10,000 mark, but together added up. And it can be you went in in the morning and deposited some money from your business and then had a had a great day and went back that afternoon to deposit again. Or maybe you split the money across your accounts. You want some in your savings, some in your checkings. It's, it's a really mundane thing to think about that someone might be doing this. And yet, through the eyes of the law, it's largely re- viewed as being in and of itself suspicious activity. So is there some movement taking place within uh, government's policymaking uh, uh, realm to, to address this uh, lack of adjustment for inflation as far as that reporting threshold? Well, brilliantly, uh, FinCEN, the, the agency in charge of overseeing these reports, it was just a few years ago, I believe in 2016, when they decided that inflation was sufficient to increase their monetary penalties. So the fines that they're levying for these these crimes or the the alleged crimes taking place. But as far as increasing the thresholds, although there's a conversation on uh, the part of civil groups, think tanks and the like, we haven't seen as much taking place in Congress. They're currently doing a review right now to decide if it might be justified. But I think it speaks for itself to see that what was originally $10,000 50 years ago is something else completely today. And what about the effectiveness of these uh, you know, currency transaction reports or the suspicious activity reports? I mean, have have they managed to really take a bite out of crime by by having these or is this largely symbolic? It seems like it's symbolic. In 2019, there was roughly 20 million reports filed on on Americans using their own money. 
And yet we don't really know how many crimes were actually stopped because of that. FinCEN has a uh, has an awards program where they uh, celebrate a few uh, cases that took place over the course of the year. But that really does not justify the larger picture. There needs to be some sort of accountability that shows whether or not this is effective, because at the moment, all signs point to it not being so. Yeah, and is it does it just endure because I don't know inertia? <laughs> it's we've been doing this for a long time. <laughs> I have no no reason to change it now. Sadly, uh, inertia is a very powerful force in Washington. I, I think a big part of it is that a lot of law enforcement uh, groups, whether it be your local police or FBI or all in between, have a huge interest in maintaining this access because for them, it's like opening up Google for all of us. It's the full picture. The full country is available in front of them and they get to, to pull at the threads when necessary. Yet for the large majority of the justice system, when an investigation needs to take place, whether it be a government official or the local police officer, they need to supply some sort of probable cause to secure a warrant to make sure that individual rights are being respected. And it should be no different here. Although it's going to make the job harder, there is a reason why the U.S. Constitution exists and there's a reason why it needs to be respected. I want to just shift away from in, from inflation and privacy for a moment and just talk uh, financial privacy in general. It seems like there is a very strong push to move toward uh, more of a, I, I mean, I'm hearing about central bank digital currencies and so forth. And it seems like that would effectively make financial privacy a thing of the past. In your opinion, is this something that is viable? Is it something that is gaining traction? Should we be aware of it or, or concerned for that matter? I really think everyone should be aware and concerned about the possibility of a central bank digital currency or CBDC, because one of the the, the last protections that's really in place for financial privacy these days is the fact that banks and financial institutions act as, as a third party that the government has to approach through a central bank digital currency all of a sudden, we have a direct line between the individual and the government. And that's something that is immensely concerning for me. And it's something that we see other countries implementing, like the, the digital currency in China right now, where they are using it as a surveillance tool. And while there might be some protections put in place, I really do worry that without a larger reform, a larger movement to protect financial privacy, those will just be swept under the rug ultimately with a central bank digital currency. Well, and I even look at the the Canadian uh, trucker convoy. Boy, there was a lot of financial shenanigans and loss of privacy and even loss of access to their funds just based on, well, you're at odds with your government and that's not allowed. Kind of Exactly. Chilling. And we, we see that all over the world, unfortunately. We see that in countries like Russia and China and Sudan. In all of these authoritarian countries, we see the financial system used to oppress individuals, especially those speaking out against the government. 
what we saw this year was different in that it's one of the freest nations of the world engaging in this practice. And that should really be a wake up call to all Americans that financial privacy is something that once you lose it, it is hard to get back. And when you have a unchecked system, it's very, it's very easy for those in control to use it as something to control you. Again, we are talking with Nick Anthony. He is a Young Voices contributor and also uh, participates in the Cato uh, organization's uh, uh, their their financial uh, department study. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm giving. You can tell us where can people find more of your work. Absolutely. Uh, people can find me online uh, at Econ with Nick on Twitter and just on Cato.org. Search Nicholas Anthony and you can find me there as well as a, a complete uh, a complete record of all my work. Nick, great to talk with you. I hope we can connect again soon. Always great to talk with you, Brian. our final segment today of Moving Forward with Young Voices. Very happy to welcome Andrew Donaldson back to the show. He's a Young Voices contributor, as well as the host of uh, quite an amazing podcast. Oh, do, you, do, you. do you want to drop a shameless plug there for, for your podcast? Yeah, Heard, heard Tell. We're real proud of it. It's done very, very well. We actually got a radio partner now with it. It's on all the podcasting platforms and YouTube. Pretty proud of it. It's kind of taken off a little bit, but uh, no yelling, just adult grown folk talk. Uh, people seem to like that and seem to crave it. Yeah, and, and you're very active on Twitter. I learn a lot from you as well as uh, get to see a lot of uh, amazing food that uh, you, yeah. you and others post on there. I mean, it's uh, I'll tell you, if somebody was going on a diet, I'd, I'd warn them twice about <laughs> about following yeah, I your got, account. I, I got GI issues, so I actually started that when I couldn't eat. Because there's a lot of times I can't eat half the stuff I'm showing. So it was part of that. But it's just a really good, you know, there's a lot of nasty stuff with what we do with politics and culture and stuff. It, it really does bring people together. And it's really funny seeing people that I know if you put them in a room together, they wouldn't get along. And they're like, oh, send me that recipe. And it's like, okay, that's pretty cool. So, you know, it's just it, you got to do a little good on Twitter. It's what you make of it. And that's a good thing to do, I think. Well, Andrew, you've always got a good take on uh, what's going on around us, uh, particularly like your your column here about uh, President Biden's get along, go along past and how uh, Biden, you know, he's he's not a very popular guy right now. But uh, really, who can he blame uh, himself? He's the president. It, here's the thing. You are what your record says you are. Remember that great, the late, great Denny Green, the football coach. They are who we thought they were. Uh President Biden's who we thought he was. We have 50 years of book on him. And whatever reason he got elected, he wasn't Trump or whatever else. You still got to do the job. And all the problems he's having, the comm shop problems in the White House, the messaging problems, uh, the gaffes, all this stuff is consistent with his history. None of this should surprise anybody. But yet our media betters and a lot of our commentary seem to be shocked and shaken by this. And it's like, did, did you not do the homework? But, you know, this is who the guy is. He was in the Senate for 36 years. The Senate is not an incubator for executive leadership. That's not a knock. It just ain't. It's two different, you know, it's cake and ice cream. It's two different things. And it was pretty predictable. And almost all the problems he's having, not even just politically, just basic leadership function stuff stems from his background. He just wasn't really well prepared to be in the White House. And he hasn't adapted. Yeah, I I don't follow I don't follow much of what uh, the political class is doing or what's being reported on them, uh, mainly because I'm, you know, paddling as hard as I can to keep my head above water and and to try to enjoy other aspects of life. But it seems like 
the, even even the people who are doing their best to try to defend Joe Biden, uh, man, they had their work cut out for him. Wasn't he? He was on. Uh, was it Jimmy Kimmel the other day? Yes. And just yeah, I, I, I saw some excerpts of that interview and and. I, I almost feel sorry for the president in how he'll just get lost and kind of start venturing off. And, you know, the host there had to jump in and Kimmel had to, you know, strike up a new topic and, you know, try to steer him back on course gently. Right. But this is always who he's been. Remember, President Obama would joke openly at the State of the Union. Remember, he called him, hey, it's Sheriff Joe. We're going to put him in charge of curing cancer. Remember all that? You know, this is who Joe is. It's not a secret. <laughs> this is just who the guy is. And now that he's gotten on up in age, you know, let's let's be polite here. You know, he's getting older. So let's say he's 90 percent, 80 percent of what he was when he was vice president. You know, he's just a step slower and it's more obvious. And the staff he has, there's there's this great line that I'm, I'm stealing from somebody, and I don't know who it is or I'd credit them, but I'll admit it's not my line, that the Democrats' problem is they run people over 70, but all their staffers are under 40. And that's the problem here. There's a disconnect. He doesn't communicate with his staff well. He does, Again, it's executive. This is basic leadership stuff. The White House is just not well run. You know, you don't have a comm shop that's this messy when it's well run. You don't have, you know, you didn't have this under Obama. We had it under Trump because, uh, you know, President Trump was his own comm shop in a lot of ways. So that was kind of messy. It's just basic leadership stuff that he just wasn't well equipped to the job, but he's got the job and he's not rising to the occasion. And those are fair criticisms beyond politics, beyond policy is if you can't run the machinery of the executive branch, the presidency's not going to get a lot accomplished, even though he's got headwinds, the 50-50 Senate. I, he's got a lot against him. That's not helping, and it becomes glaringly obvious. Wow. So I, I got to ask you, and hopefully I'm not stepping too far into conspiratorial territory, but no worries. If, if Joe Biden isn't uh, up to snuff, who do you think is is exerting that influence and, and essentially helping him behind the scenes? Who's whispering in well, the, you know, the earbud for him? Yeah, see, this went back to his senatory. See, he brought Ron Klain on, who's the chief of staff. Now, the chief of staff is the gatekeeper. Every Nobody goes to the president without the chief of staff. It's the most important position in the White House. That's from his Senate days. So all the stuff from his Senate, he basically just brought the same team and then tried to upscale it, and we see how that's not really, really working well. We saw reporting this week where Susan Rice can get to the president's ear anytime she wants to, and we can talk about the foreign policy disaster she's been over the years, another Obama holdover. The, it's a small circle, and that's part of the problem with President Biden is he is his own guy, and he is his own legend in his own mind. And I really don't mean that disrespectfully at all. It's just he's always been a big talking guy. That's just who he is. You know, he's Joe. He's Sheriff Joe. He gets things done. And that burns him when you're in the executive because you're saying stuff and other countries react to it and policy reacts to it and Congress reacts to it and the media reacts to it. And then the comm shop runs behind him and then they have to try to clean it up. And then two days later, we get whatever the actual policy is. That's not good for the country. So are you suggesting that some of these foreign countries maybe aren't as impressed with his stories of corn pop as, as we are? <laughs> um, OK, I'm a guy that just sits at the computer and reads about this stuff. So if you don't think the foreign heads of state don't have good book on him, you know, you don't think Vladimir Putin has a really, really good read on Joe Biden after knowing, you know, they've met, I think, 20 sometimes over the last 25 years, give or take different. You know, Vladimir Putin has a read on Joe Biden. And our allies do, too. You know, the um, the Brits have a read on him. The Japanese have a read on him. The Australians have a read. Everybody knows who Joe Biden is. He has a 50-year record of who he is. It's just silly to pretend he's something that he is not. So we have to deal with what he is, which is limited, which is struggling, and then go forward from there. Look, he if you didn't vote for him, you voted for him, whatever. He's the president. We need the president to function. You could argue just on a basic level, the White House is not functioning really well right now. 
No, I, th- I think so. And, it, you know, this is the thing. I, I used to take comfort in the idea that when the, the founders wrote the Constitution, they didn't write it in such a way that, man, it this this system of government stands or falls on the competency of the president. There were checks and balances right. built in. But I'm I'm concerned. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm I'm wondering if if maybe I may have overestimated, you know, how those checks and balances might uh, might spread out some of the responsibility. Well, not really, because the American people are going to do what they cyclically and historically do. Now, I never count on the GOP to not shoot themselves in the foot, but they should do really well in this midterm. They're going to probably get the House. They may get the Senate. You're going to have that power balance still back. And not that they got a whole lot done anyway. That's kind of been the par for the course. But the president, you know, this dynamic's going to change. His numbers are actually going to go up because he's going to be fighting in a Republican Congress and he'll be looking at his own reelection. And let's be adults. If he's got breath in his body, he's running for reelection. Just stop all that nonsense. He's going to run for reelection. May even win with some of the craziness going on. You don't know. So this dynamic is going to shift again because it's not going to be the same thing. Now he's going to be attacking a Republican Congress. He's not going to be the guy in charge all the time. It's going to free him up to be kind of Joe Biden again. We'll see what he does with it but you know politics is a moving river man you got to kind of jump in and then float with it and see where it goes this is going to be very very interesting after this midterm election see what president biden does with it i know there's been a lot of prognostication that the republicans are pretty well positioned going into these midterms however i'm seeing a number of republicans stepping up and signing on to uh, proposed gun control for instance and i have to ask you do you think that might hurt them in the midterms well, the 10 that have already signed on to it, none of them are up for re-election, and three of them, I believe, are retiring. Barr's retiring, or Burr, excuse me, a couple other of them are retiring. None of them are up for re-election, the 10 that we know of. Now, they're saying there may be more. But again, and I'll caution everybody on this. I said this on Twitter. We don't have a text of that bill yet, so I'm not even going to get twisted about it yet because who knows what's going to be in it. Talking points don't mean anything. They're going to have to write the bill. When they actually get it in writing, we'll look at it. Will it hurt them? Probably this is, you know, an enumerated right. I was talking to the British media a little bit ago. I was trying to explain to them. I was like, look, to a lot of people, especially Second Amendment, liberty minded, conservative people, this is like your right to vote. This is like your free speech. This is an enumerated right. They're going to take this very, very serious. They're going to be very, very skeptical, as they should be of any kind of legislation, especially legislation that isn't going to get us law enforcement accountability like what we saw in Uvalde. You know, like those two things go together, like, you know. The two A guys have an argument because, like, you can't trust the police after what you saw there, and then you're going to put them in charge of more power. There's a lot to be hashed out there. People are right to be skeptical of it. Let's get the bill in black and white and go from there. We got about one minute left. I, I've got to ask you. Um, every time I hear the phrase "the Putin price hike," my eyes roll so far back in my head. I have to go see an optometrist. I, are, is Biden going to push this uh, until until we finally nod our heads just out of sheer exhaustion? Well, he's got nothing else. But let's be fair. You know, the president gets too much blame, too much uh, credit for the economy. It was already high. The Putin thing put it over the top from bad to this is really hurting people. So, you know, four dollar gas, it pushed it to five. Putin's a little bit of it, but Joe Biden also needs to take accountability for it. You cannot run for president saying we're going to end fossil fuels. And that's a direct quote. He said we're going to end fossil fuels. Companies scaled back. That scales back production. It's just the way it is. Again, his words matter. What he said mattered. And now you're seeing the result of it. Okay, again, we are talking with Andrew Donaldson. He is a Young Voices contributor, also the host of Heard Tell, a remarkable uh, podcast, by the way. You do a magnificent job. Where else can people find you on social media? 
uh, we write at ordinary-times.com. Really talented bunch of people. Of course, I'm very, very proud of my work with Young Voices. Just re-up with them for another term. Also doing some mentoring with them, which is really, uh, really special to me. And when I grow up, I want to have a radio voice like you, my friend. So we'll just keep working <laughs> on that in the meantime. Great to talk with you again, Andrew. Anytime, sir.